we go. Rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition, as we do every Thursday. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast. Adam Stanko is out West. Our guest today, Steve Jones Jr. Now, if you follow him on Twitter at Steve Jones 20, you know him from breaking down game film and may think, well, what makes him so great? Well, former Nets assistant coach, worked in the Grizzlies video department for years, played at Arizona State, played at UNLV, the son of the legendary Steve Snapper Jones, who was a three-time ABA All-Star and a long-time television analyst for the NBA. And we're going to talk family. We're going to talk hoops. But Steve, I want to start with when you worked at the Wynn Hotel in Vegas, working at the front desk, what is your go-to dinner party story from, you know, this was a crazy night at the front desk at the Wynn in Vegas? <laughs> oh, I didn't need a dinner party story. We were right next to the club. So the front desk was right next to the club. And so it was just shenanigans every Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. And I ended up working graveyard shift after like my first month. So it was pretty insane the amount of things I saw and the questions I was asked. And that's all I'll say about that. You can't, you can't, you can't even give us one question that you were asked? I won't even allow it. We could shut down the podcast now if we're not getting. You can't leave us like that. We're too curious. There's no come no on, way. man. One question. What, one question you what were asked. Ha- what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Someone right, well, asked me what cool? their name was. Someone asked me what their name was. <laughs> That's good. They were a guest and they asked me what their name was, and I didn't know what to do with that. There you go. That's yeah, the one. I know what go. to do either. All right, so no. let's 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 then stay with stories. Your your dad worked with Bill Walton forever. You have a great Bill Walton story. From my dad's perspective? Because I don't really have one. Yeah, I wasn't sure if there's anything that your dad had ever told you about Walton that has always stuck with you. They were great friends. But I mean, all of the stuff that played out on screen, y'all all saw that. But they were like really great friends. You know, <laughs> even in the 70s, they go driving in the mountains and stuff. So it goes way back. Um, but yeah, all the the bantering back and forth, that was all natural. You'd have one side, my dad would have the other side, and they would just go back and forth and then just laugh about it later. Mm-hmm. I want to go back in time and go back actually to your high school days at Jesuit High School. You, your senior year, you're 28 and one, ranked number 23 in the country by USA Today. And for people who don't know, Jesuit High School in Portland, Eric Spolster, Mike Dunleavy, Kyle Wilcher all played there. Um, when you are are dominating, what is your thought about your basketball future and career at that time? Oh, I'm done. That was my last hurrah. That was my last year. I didn't have any other thoughts of going forward. I thought, this is the last year I'll play basketball. Let's go out with a bang. And that was it, honestly. And that's you know why I pushed myself and we worked so hard. I was a piece of a great team, but I had no illusions of continuing to going forward. Not that I didn't have the talent, but I just didn't think it was going to happen. So I played that year. It goes my last. That's kind of been my mindset Mm. Um, as far back as I've gone is whatever I'm doing, I'm going to do it as if this is the last time I'll be able to do it. And I'm going to give it my all and see what happens. So then how how did it end up happening for you at Arizona State to walk on? Uh, I walked on. Uh, I was able to go there. I got into school. Um, coaches kind of knew who I was, kind of. So I was able to kind of showcase what I could do. 
and then they let me stick around basically that's about as simple as i can explain that one (laughs) (laughs) um but i didn't see that coming like that wasn't part of my plan it just kind of came together because honestly i would rather just go on to oregon and walked on but they didn't do walk-ons or at least that's what they told me so i was like all right Hmm. (laughs) let's move forward (laughs) well you ended up moving forward and and playing with James Harden when he was a freshman. What were your your first impressions of him? Uh, James was just tough, man. Like, he had such a mindset to continue to improve, and my job was really just to pester him, bother him, guard him, get him prepared for Pac-10 play at the time, and just try and be as physical as possible. And he didn't care what I did. He would always come back at me. He'd talk trash. He'd score. He'd respond. and he'd make adjustments. Like I think the most underrated thing that James does now is he adjusts to what defenses do. He continues to add to his game, but he did that his freshman year. So whenever I found some version of what I would call success, he would change that up and come back at me the next day. Uh, I take away his right hand. All of a sudden now he wants to drive right. Or, you know, I let him shoot a jumper. He misses a couple. Now he's taking it, faking it and then driving past me. So he's always been great at making adjustments He's always just been a really good locker room guy, easy to talk to, easy to get along with, and it was a pleasure playing with him. So my brother, Eric, was a manager on ASU's team the year after uh, James was a freshman, so the year after uh, when you had left. So one thing that he had always told me was that Herb Sendek was very meticulous in terms of how he coached and just getting through a certain set. And and really the guys weren't playing. You hear a lot of coaches, how, how the guys are playing loose, but he would tell me about, you know, he would stop practice because guys thumbs weren't facing the floor when they threw a chess pass or something. And it was just very particular throughout how much of his coaching style do you think had an impact on the kind of player that, that Harden was becoming during that time? Zero percent. Hmm. Hmm. I'm not giving him any of that. Interesting. <laughs> Sorry. Interesting. No, no, no apologies necessary. I, I, that's uh, that's. So, do you think he hindered Harden's development then? No, James was able to be highlighted in a role that made Coach Sendek open things up and allowed James to be a playmaker and kind of carry the team that would help him going forward. But I don't think it was because of anything that Coach Sendek did all due respect, um, James just has that talent level. And he was able to elevate that program at that time and, you know, make plays, execute. I mean, I'll say this. My last year at ASU, we ran – let me see. I'm trying to think. Because we ran the Princeton offense with Coach Sendek first came in. And then we ran, like, flex – we did all these meticulous things, and then when James came, things changed. So that's why I'm kind of like, I think it was the other way around a little bit, all due respect, but right, things were a little bit different when James came in. Was Doug Collins, I know Doug Collins used to visit practice when my brother was there. Was he also coming to practice yeah. a lot when you were there? Yeah, did he was you, there a lot. Did you spend time talking to him about the game? Uh, every now and then. I've, I'm always very like narrow focused. I come, I do my job, I move on. And so I'd say hello every once in a while or, you know, he'd be like, hey, look how hard he's playing. And that was kind of my thing. But other than that, I was just like, kind of, I know the game. 
<laughs> so um, that was my perspective as far as I knew why he was there, what he was doing, and it didn't do anything for me particularly. So I let it go to the rest of my teammates and James and let that be a blast. Today's episode of Rejecting the Screen is brought to you by Rock Auto. What's so wild is that chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and then the folks like us, the do-it-yourselfers. RockAuto.com's prices are the same for everybody. Hmm. It's a family business, been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. So you can go to RockAuto.com and shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They've got everything. RockAuto.com's catalog is so easy to navigate. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle. Then you can choose the brands, the specifications, and then also the prices that you prefer. And speaking of prices, rockauto.com's prices are always reliably low for everybody. So why spend twice as much for the same parts? Doesn't make any sense. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Right locked on, L-O-C-K-E-D space on in the how did you hear about us box so that they know we sent you. We appreciate it. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com. When you were part of coaching staffs in the NBA, developing game plans to try to slow down James Harden, he he ever tort you in the league? Yes. Mm. But it wasn't... It was more so whenever I was in a locker room, I never really tailored or asked or put in the input to tailor the game plan towards James. I was in Memphis. We had Tony Allen. So I knew Tony was going to be active and work on him. So, you know, it is what it is. And when Brooklyn, it was just like, okay, we need to worry about these other guys. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. back when I remember back when it was James and Dwight Howard, my goal was always let's let Dwight get a post up early because then he'll think he has it going. And then that changes the game. So, <laughs> you know, it was always a, a thing where I know James is going to score. How can I take everyone else away and make it tough so that his scoring doesn't elevate? And now he's not playmaking too. So it was kind of like a different deal where I wasn't trying to take him away or and put that input in. It was just like, James is great let's figure out how to beat that team and make Mm -hmm. him just be great on his own Island. Back to your playing days in college. When you, when you got to UNLV, the, the famous shot comes in the tournament from Ali Farouk Manesh in in Northern Iowa. And really we're talking about this. Yeah. I mean, it's replayed. You said said that man's name. Well, well, look, we didn't have the NCAA (laughs) tournament this year. So not the whole country couldn't see the shot again. So it's been, hmm. you know, you've had a few extra months without it. So we might as well yeah. bring it up. What was what was the locker room like? It was awful. That's the end of my career. So I'm just sitting there. <laughs> the last game of my career ended because he hit that shot. And I'm just sad. That was it. I had a towel over my head and everyone, media was coming in, taking pictures. And I was just like, this is great. And that was it because I knew that was the end of my run. So it was like, this stinks. And you deal with it. When did you first watch the shot? I've never watched that shot. Oh, so I, it's, I'll never watch it again. It's so on my it, list of games. I'll never rewatch. Well, okay. So you'll never rewatch the game, 
But when Mm-mm. it, you know, in those montages, when it just shows up, what do you, what do you do? You like just grab a pillow? What do you do? Nope, I don't look. Anytime his name is spoken, anything about it, that whole run when they beat Kansas, nothing. No, I don't want anything to do with it. You never met him? No. I feel like we should be playing like, this is your life. <laughs> oh, and behind door number two, Ali Farouk Ganesh. <laughs> no, no thanks. Yeah. Well, Steve, another guy that that obviously, well, two guys that you face that that people know a ton about, Jimmer Fredette, when you're playing in that conference, and Kawhi Leonard. And I first want to ask you about Kawhi. I know that when you guys played for the Mountain West title, you you tweeted about this. You guys had 26 rebounds. He had 21. What did you think about Kawhi's future at that point in time? Is this a compilation of everything that's hurt me in my life? Is that? <laughs> no, is I, that, I really don't. Is this, is this uncovering pain? Like <laughs> is this just peeling band aids off over and over again? I, is that what we're doing? No, no it just feels that We figured that you can give the most unique insight before these guys were stars in the NBA. Uh, as far as Kawhi in college, he was a different animal. He didn't have the shot, but he was unbelievably scrappy and physical. He would take a pull up, get his own rebound, maybe miss it, get his own rebound. There's nothing you could do about it. So Kawhi had a physical gift on the defensive end. He had an effort on the offensive end that you really had problems matching because he had that size. He had that mindset. He had those hands. So it was tough. Jimmer, uh, Jimmer was great in college. Jimmer was a different guy. You know, a lot of the way we talk about NBA teams talk about taking away Steph Curry or Damian Lillard. That's how we talked about taking away Jimmer in college. Um, you know, you had to be up anytime he crossed half court because he might pull up. So you had to be up and aware. We were always active, trying to take away the shot, uh, make it tough on him, pressure him because, you know, he's just had that level. And the way they ran their offense, even if you stopped him, he's going to pass it, get it right back. And you had to do it all over again. So and that that probably to me is why the translation didn't wasn't as effective for him because he wasn't getting as many looks as he was at BYU. Like this, mm. you know, kid can play, but you're not going to get the pass pass back as much in the league as you did in college. Um, you know, I I remember I guarded him at BYU. I think he was sick or something like that, but I guarded him and he hit me with like four, five, six fakes. I ended up contesting his shot, but I was like, damn, I'm tired. That was a lot. Um, so you know, Jimmer could play. Um, yeah. he was tough to deal with. There was no doubt about the respect that the coaches made sure we had for his game, but we always wanted to make sure we put our pressure on him. Did did you ever think that during his time away from the NBA that he would get another shot back in the league or that he would stick in the league at some point? The issue with Jimmer was mainly just finding a team that could use him properly more than anything. You know, he, he needs the ball in his hands or, you know, the ability to space and I just don't think he ever found his home which is an unfortunate reality for a lot of really good players they don't always find their spot their role they're a team that knows how to use them so that was my biggest thing I knew Jimmer could play I still think Jimmer can play but can he find a team that's going to use him the right way Mm -hmm. to unlock that I don't know when you got into the league with the Grizzlies as a as a video intern can you take us through what day-to-day is like as a video intern in the NBA? I mean, you show up, you 
make sure everyone has their film. You may have to show whatever edits are supposed to go on, whatever the coaches need broken down for upcoming games. The last game we played, um, if practice is going on, film it, training camp, film it, draft workouts, film it. Um, make sure coaches get their film on the way out. Make sure you take care of any player requests on their way out. Um, support the guy above you. And you just do the grunt work. You watch the tape. You're watching tape. You're watching our tape. You're watching other players' tape. You're watching personnel tape. You're watching other teams' tape. You're pretty much getting a master's in basketball. Um, but you're viewing the game in a different lens because you're trying to train your eye to see what your team needs what your team is wanting, what your team is looking to do offensively, defensively. So, you know, it's kind of an issue for me because, like, I don't watch the game of basketball the same way I did before that just because my eyes are trained to certain things defensively, offensively, what teams are trying to do because you had to spend that time that first year building that up. You know, whatever you think you know about the game, you quickly learn, oh, there's a whole other level to it. So um, it's it's just a lot of – work being flexible being adjustable you know you might have a to-do list of five things someone might come in and say hey we need this and your to-do list goes to the back end you get that done and you go to the next thing so it's just kind of that kind of grind um and just being ready at all times you never know when you get a phone call a text an email about what they may need for the next day or what you did that gets scrapped and they need something else so it's really just being prepared who who trained you who mentored you so that you could see the game that way. In what sense do you mean? In, so when you're in the, in the video room, um, who are the guys that were above you that you were working with day to day that not necessarily say, Hey, here's how you do it. But you started to see the game differently because of the way they saw the game. Oh, it was Jason March. That was my guy. Oh. Uh, head coach of the hustle. So he was my guy. He was always above me. And so he helped me adapt my brain and my eyes to what the league needed and what the team needed. So that's what helped me. Um, and as far as that goes, cause you're trying to serve multiple different people at the same time, you know, the coaches need what you do. Players need what you do. At times the front office needs what you do. And they're all kind of seeing the game from a different lens. So you just have to be prepared for that and get yourself going in that way. You mentioned Tony Allen a bit ago. Um, you know, it's weird. You you talk to guys around the league, and they all have this crazy respect for Tony Allen and what he does on on the defensive end of the floor. It's interesting because you go back a little ways, and in in college and all was was also really strong offensive threat too. But defensively, talking to guys, they always bring up that he steps ahead of of offensive players and all of that. Um, what were you seeing, especially like you say, you see the game differently, the way you're breaking down film that Tony Allen was able to do on the defensive end that, that helped you guys so much during that time? He was just amazing as far as being able to take the top guy, make everything difficult on them, um, deny the ball, pressure and pick and roll, help on the weak side, get a steal. Um, you know, his hustle was something you really couldn't replicate. So as far as getting that education and seeing what he did and seeing the preparation he put into it, as far as watching the film on those guys, knowing their moves, understanding what teams want to do, you start to pick up on those things as he yells that out, sees it, and you move forward from that. What's it like being part of 
And then, I mean, you're part of basketball teams playing your whole life and going through wins and losses that way. What's what are the highs and lows like day to day, game to game with an NBA team dealing with wins and losses? I mean, it's about the same. It's no different than playing. I mean, it, you're preparing to help the players do the things on the court. You feel the losses just as much as they do, maybe even more, depending on how much work you put into that game. You feel the wins just as much or more, depending on how things are going. So you you kind of ride the roller coaster with them. Um, you know, there, I me myself, I hate losing, so I might be the wrong person to ask about this because every loss sucked, and I wanted to see exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, but there's no different. Like it's not like you're you're removed from playing, but you're still got that same mindset of, Hey, we had a chance. You know, I always, I always felt like, Hey, we had a chance to win that game. We should have won that game. Um, when you're in it, um, even if I was wrong, like I, forever, I was like, uh, when we made the conference finals and got swept by the Spurs, I was like, we should have won that series. And if I say that to anyone, that's pure insanity, but I still feel that way. Like we could have won that series, but we didn't. So, you you could have won the series if what? Oh, if the bench hadn't gone off every game. We ran every game. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just couldn't cap it off. And so that part kind of sticks with you. So in that 2012-2013 season that you're talking about, you guys had beat the Thunder in the Western Conference semis 4-1. What, what was the feeling like? I mean, you know, we we talked about some of the lows, obviously, your career, unfortunately, but but that's got to be one of the high points. So so during that stretch, you guys knock off the thunder. What's what's the team talking about? What are they thinking about at that at that point in time? Beat the Spurs. That was it. <laughs> it was it was literally just let's go beat the Spurs and let's go to the finals. And we didn't get done, but um, it was good to advance to that depth of the playoffs um and face that team it just kind of stung we couldn't get that done um but i mean you know you look there's two overtime games last game we lost by seven or something like that i think so when you beat that oklahoma city team especially in that way in you know winning two games in oklahoma city that was definitely a high um in that series so that was fun especially after you beat the clippers um that was kind of a nice one-two punch to get some momentum and confidence going forward and just really kind of getting that belief where, hey, we can really do this. Um, it just ran to a machine. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What, what, what was Lionel Holland like day-to-day? Great. Coach Holland is great. He's positive, <laughs> um, inspiring. You know, mm-hmm. he's not afraid to tell you what he needs or what he feels, but he's great in that aspect. Um, and finding what guys need and getting the most out of them. Um, there's no doubt that he had that kind of impact on that team and brought everyone together and helped push that towards that level. I think it's interesting that you used the word inspiring since, so you were in, in high school, you were named most inspiring player twice. And during your redshirt year at UNLV, you were named the team's most inspirational player. So what were the things that you were doing to inspire teammates? And then as a, as a head coach in the league, like 
like Lionel Hollins, what are the types of things that head coaches can do to inspire NBA players? Uh, one of the most underrated things that Coach Hollins did was he connected with his players and went along that path with them as they went from you know younger adults to men and was able to connect with them through that and help push them through those things. Um, as far as coaching goes, you got to connect with your players. You have to understand what they're going through, what they need, how they can be coached, how to push them to a different level. Um, as far as myself, I go, it was just mainly trying to do whatever I could to help my teammates win. I've always tried to be a team player. I've always tried to um, put us in a position to have the best success possible because that's the most important thing at the end of the day. If you're a part of a successful unit, it's going to make everyone look better than most statistics you can put up. So if I can help you reach another level, help you play harder, help you work harder, push you to a different level, then I'm going to do that. Um, help you understand the plays, whatever it is, whatever my team needs me to do, I'm always going to do that. Your final season with the Grizzlies, what did that specifically look like in terms of being a video coordinator and, and work in player development? Um, how are you incorporating both? What are some examples of, of guys that you did exactly that, where you're improving their game based upon what you see video-wise with them on the court from a development standpoint? Uh, are you talking about specific players or? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking that I'm thinking about, you know, you're getting a chance here. You are um, breaking down film. You have such a great eye for it. And now you're getting a chance to be hands on. I mean, maybe you were in spurts before, but officially your title is now player development. So that final season, I'm just curious, specific players, uh, some of the things you're doing with them player development wise that you had seen based on the film. Well, I mean, we still had a veteran team, so it, there wasn't a ton of young guys to develop. A lot of those guys had great eyes on their own. I worked a lot with Nick Calathis, um, trying to show some film to John Luer to get him going uh, every now and then, Ed. But we had a lot of guys who knew what they were doing and knew what they had to accomplish. So um, as far as that perspective goes, it was mainly how do I connect the dots, paint the picture of what's going on and improve our team in that area more so than I got the young guys that we can push to a different level. Um, we, 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 had a, we had a team that knew what they were doing. All right, so how, how did you connect with, talk about connecting with players, how did you connect with KG the next year in Brooklyn? I just existed. KG's awesome. So you just kind of exist in KG's world. Um, he, that was probably one of my highlights of working in the NBA is just being around him and his energy, his passion for the game. Um his understanding of what we need to do defensively, offensively. I remember he would rest games and I'd be in the back cutting the game up. He'd be back there. And it was just like a whole different education, uh, learning from him, seeing what he would see and trying to pick up on some of those things. So um, KG was a blast, man, that I'm thankful for that experience. Like what, like what, what did, what was KG saying? Do, do you remember specific examples? What do you mean? What he was, just, what was he saying? Like you were just saying that, you know, KG was in the back and, and you were in the back and he, he's seeing at a game, he's seeing the game at a, at a, at a different level and he's pointing things out to you. Do you remember specific examples of like, here's how KG is seeing the defense and, you know, you've been watching film, been around the game forever, but you're still learning from him. It may just be a different perspective. 
you know, mm-hmm. the game of basketball is kind of not black and white. It's gray. So I may be seeing one thing about a play in the post. He may be saying, hey, we need to double that guy so that way we can take away the skip to the other guy. Those kind of things. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? How did KG, how does, how does he connect with teammates, given that his, his presence is just so huge? What do you mean by that? People in, in general and, and players could be intimidated by KG. How does how does KG make sure that everybody is comfortable around him as teammates? But on the same team, you just got to have that same passion and work ethic. You got to just work hard. As long as you work hard, you got no beef with KG. As far as I've seen when I was there. So, I mean, it's it's a respect deal when you're playing with someone. You're on the same team. You're working towards the same goals. If you have that effort, there's no reason for him to come at you. What do you think is it about the average fan? I mean, look, you your Twitter feed's unbelievable in terms of breaking down film and giving people a chance to get inside what you're doing for teams. Like now you give to the general public. Um, what do you think it is a lot of times that fans get wrong about, I guess, what teams are doing well and what they're not doing well? Uh, I mean, I'd probably say it's very easy to get caught in narratives, maybe the highlight play, maybe not understanding why that worked. Maybe I really, I focus on the why, honestly, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's easy, it's easy to see the what, but do you know why it happened? And I feel like if you understand why it happened, that will help you as you continue to watch these games, because you can see what the offense is trying to do, what the defense is trying to do, you know. Uh, my dad used to always ask me growing up, was that a good shot? And I would never get it right um, until I started to pick up on some things, understand, okay, maybe that wasn't a good shot, but it still went in. What's that mean? Um, why is that right, team right. trying to do that? Why are they trapping? What does that impact have on the game? What does that impact have on their defense? Um, you know, is this guy a threat where the defense has to react in a different way? So you start to piece those things together. You have a greater understanding of what you're watching, and that can only enhance what you're seeing. And so that honestly is my goal is to take what I see and add that to what you're viewing. And it's never to have you see exactly what I see. I'm a firm believer that basketball is a gray. You know, it's a gray area. It's not black or white. So I don't want you to agree with me all the time, but I do want you to take what I see and add it to what you're watching. And hopefully at the end of the day, you understand, Oh, this is what's happening. Now I see what they're trying to do. This is more fun. Cause I understand what they're really trying to do as opposed to, you know, this is a great game because it's close. Cause not every close game is great. Do you ever, do you get frustrated seeing all the narrative talk and the what on Twitter instead of more about the why? No, I don't get frustrated because it serves a purpose for a specific audience. You know, there okay. are people who like basketball who may not want to understand why, and that's mm-hmm. okay. You know, that's going to give them an entry level into it and have to give them a base to watch the game. Um, the problem probably there is when it's only about the what and there's no context given to it. You know, I think that's where if you want to say I would get frustrated, that's yeah. probably where it is when you're not wrapping the game in context, you know, when you're just saying, oh, that can't believe this play um, that they ran where they just gave LeBron the ball at the top of the key. Well, would you say that same thing if he had made the shot? That's where I start to get into why are we doing that? You know, and that, yeah, it's it, okay. It, 
way to appreciate a one-on-one isolation play or question a one-on-one isolation play, but you have to kind of add some strokes into it, add some context, or else it's just playing the result. And if you're just playing the result, then what are you really doing? You know, you're always going to be right. And unfortunately with everything in 2020, there's a race to being right instead of finding out what's actually going on. Steve, you mentioned earlier in the podcast about how Harden would make adjustments throughout a game. What other players are on the league? And it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't even have to be superstars, but guys that you've broken down um, are good with, with making adjustments and going to their, not just counter moves, but I mean, we, we can get into the coaches too, obviously, but I'm just curious from a player perspective, what other players are really good about, about making adjustments as the game goes on? I think, I mean, I could probably list all the great players and go one by one there because those guys have seen the defenses. They have the talent to kind of bend the defenses and then they can read it and react. And that's the biggest thing. You look at Damian Lillard's run. Uh, it's not just because he's playing great. He's playing at a high level, but you have to look at the mix of what he's doing. He can pull up from three. He can drive if your big comes up. He can dish the ball. So he's putting all that together where whatever the defense does, um, he's going to find the right play to make. I'd probably say John ja Morant in that playing game against Portland. He struggled early because they were dropping. They were taking away the paint. They were making him finish and contest. He made the adjustment in the second half. I'm just going to go hard, attack the paint. Uh, I asked you to pull up three, I will. And he was able to make some more plays that way. So it, that it, it's less about the people who do it and more about um, can those guys do it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, yeah, that's like that's that's the difference in that respect where – you can throw a defense at a certain guy and get the same result over and over again, or you can see how he's reading that defense and now he's making you pay for it. And now you have to react. So that's kind of the fun of it for me. And I mean, the top level guys are going to do top level guy things. Um, But it's more so when you're evaluating a talent, you got to see if they can continue to make the right reads. How do you evaluate head coaches? In what sense? In this sense. Because you can evaluate them in a lot of ways. Yeah. So it's not just wins and losses, although for ownership, it oftentimes it is. How do you but evaluate? It is, though. It, is, it is wins and losses. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's but, a business. If you're not sure. winning, you're not, you're not going to stay long for a while. Right. But if you know a team goes from, well, I guess – Going from ten wins to twenty five wins, yeah, you 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 improved, but you know, do you stay at that point for for that long? So I'll phrase it this way: How do you evaluate coaches in the back to the narrative side of things? There seems to be buckets of coaches. So I want to see how how you view coaches: players coach, developmental coach, X's and O's coach. I, the problem with those buckets is that coach may be all three of those things, but depending on how his team is doing is how he gets viewed. What would you say Rick Carlisle is? I'd say he's all those things. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, what would what would you say Billy Donovan is? Again, I'd go with all <laughs> those things. Yeah. What about Eric Spolstra? I'd say I'd say all those I'd say all those things. 
and all the good, all the, the coaches that are understood as or recognized as really good coaches would be a combination, would be a combination of all those things. So then the question I would ask in reply is who is not all of those things? All right. So let's so take Kenny Atkinson, for example. Kenny Atkinson was labeled as a development coach. I thought he did great things with the Nets. He did. But he's not there. But he's not, he, but he's not there anymore. Why so is was he, he is he more coach? is he well, because he came up in the player development ranks. That that I'm just saying that was the narrative. It wasn't what I was saying. That was the that was the narrative. So how would you so take Kenny Atkinson? How would you label and characterize Kenny Atkinson as a head coach? I think he's a great coach. I think that his time there had hit that middle point. And this is the part that gets forgotten. If you're a coach that takes over a quote unquote bad team or a struggling Mm -hmm. team, you're going to get attached to a certain level until they raise up. Right. And then once they raise up, you have to then hit another level. And if you don't hit that next level, guess what? You're probably not going to stay there. Right. How do you hit that next level then as a coach? By winning. How do you get the team to the next level as a coach? It's it's a little bit different. It's different in this sense, because I'll keep using this example. If you get the superstar player, you can no longer be the development coach. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That gets stripped away from you. So whatever that gave you is now gone, and now it's win-now mode. Got it. You look at Brett, Brett Brown in Philadelphia. He got the benefit of the doubt. He was the development coach. Everything was great. What time is it now? It's winning time, right? Mm-hmm. Now it's a different kind of pressure. He's seen differently. So that's where things kind of change and it becomes less about. I mean, I wouldn't say it, I'll say it, it still matters how you coach, but that's where the production comes in. Because if you're not producing, they're going to look for someone else because they built a roster that they're expecting to have certain success. If they don't have that, whatever you did doesn't have as much cachet as before. And do you mind if I stay on Brett Brown for a moment here? How does Brett Brown get that team to the next level? Or is Brett Brown incapable of getting that team to the next level, given their current roster construction? I wouldn't say he's incapable. He just has to take those pieces and make it work. And that's always the dynamic that gets lost in it. The front office puts the ingredients in the cupboard. The coach has to cook them. So the coach isn't always picking what meal he's trying to cook. You know, if you have a guy who makes a great steak and you give him all the ingredients for a salad and it's going to be interesting. So what he has to do to take that team to the next level outside of winning, I won't hammer that point is he has to make sure that his stars produce and make sure that they're competitive um, because sometimes you have a roster that's missing something and instead of the roster missing something, it's sometimes the coach's fault or sometimes the coaching can overcome that in that aspect. So, you know, you look at Toronto, what Nick Nurse has done this year, that roster isn't as good as last year, but they're still competing at a high level. That's probably a great coaching job, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, no question. Go ahead. You're always going to get more credit for taking less and making more out of it than having more and maybe struggling. And then mm-hmm. and so 
that's where unfortunately the end game is always winning because I don't think Brett Brown's done a terrible job this year. Um, you know, it's a it's an odd fitting team. You know, they lost JJ Reddick, um, and they replaced it. They lost Jimmy Butler, and then they replaced it with Al Horford and Josh Richardson. Those pieces already weren't always fitting, and now they're new pieces that aren't always fitting. And you know, you just have to find a way to make that work. Um, obviously, it's way different now with Simmons out, but he's got to. He's got to find a way to to win. <laughs> I know I wasn't going to say that, but he has yeah. to find a way to win, or else that you know you know you never you never know what's going to happen. Steve, you talk about that. You know the GM or the executive group comes up with the the ingredients in the cupboard, and then you know head coach has to cook it. When you're when you're part of the coaching staff, and and you guys are having your meetings before the season. What is what do, what do those discussions look like in terms of the kind of pace that you're going to have or you know um how your defensive sets or like what you guys are running offensively or who you're focusing in the offense and then how much does that change over the course of the season Well that's the interesting part you're trying to make the most out of what you can do with your roster to me, that's an important important part of coaching. You have to take what you have and get the most out of it. You may have 17 or 18 ideas coming into the preseason, but if your roster doesn't match it, you probably can't put them in. You know, right. Right. Um, if, if you have, for example, a, a team that's great in the fast break, you don't want to put in a half-court set flex offense or elbow offense that limits them. So it's as a coach, you got to understand what you have, what's going to make them great, what's going to put them in good positions. And something you can go ahead and, and install that they can run. Um, defensively, that's where the interesting part comes in. Again, it's all about the personnel that you have. If you want to run a trap, but your big can't get up there, it's probably not the best idea to do it, right? Um, so you look at maybe a team like Chicago, where what they were doing felt forced, as opposed to a team like Miami, where what they're doing gets the most out of who they have. And that's the balance you have to find as a coach where, you know, maybe, and it goes, it ties back into roster or talent evaluation. If I know Mm -hmm. a guy can play, he can do X, Y, and Z. I'm not going to ask him to do A, B, and C. I need to find a way to get him doing that. You know, a guy like Duncan Robinson, he looks great in Miami. He's a really good player. I don't know if that translates everywhere. You know what I mean? They may not understand what he does. Just a few more moments and uh, a few unrelated questions to one another. Are you trying to get rid of me? (laughs) No, I'm not trying to get rid of you. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, Are there teams that you watch and, and you know what assistant coaches bring to the table? Are there let's say two assistants in the league right now that you think should be part of the next group of head coaches. There's more than two. Okay. I was um, just asking you to name two, but you can name as many as you'd like. I mean, uh, Ime Odoka, Adrian Griffin, probably the two, two that jump up first, but then you have the Tyron lose the world. You have the Jason codes of the world. You have plenty of guys out there who can rise up to that occasion. 
you know, it's just going to be tough to figure out when they get their spot. If you notice, every time there's a coaching opening, do you see the pattern of the names that come up? You have your established established assistant. You have your not-in-the-league assistant. You have your up-and-coming assistant, another up-and-coming assistant, and then a wild card. I'm just throwing that out there. You know. Mm-hmm. Did, did your dad ever want to coach? No, absolutely not. I asked him about that. He did not want to. He didn't want to coach. He didn't run a team. He just wanted to watch the game. And yeah, I, don't, so, I don't blame him. I mean, when did you? When did? When did you first decide you wanted to coach? In college, in college, I was always very communi- I was a great communicator, um, uh, uh, trying to understand what we ran and knowing our plays and what other teams did, and communicating that with my team. So that was kind of my thing, and I always thought that I could make that kind of transition and stay within the game. Cause you know, I didn't expect to play in college. I certainly didn't expect to do anything after that, but I had a love and a knowledge of the game. So I figured that was probably my best path um, in all honesty. So that kind of started to stir in my mind in college, but it wasn't like a for sure thing. I was just like, you know, probably something I could do. Our final question, always the rejecting the screen question, since it's the rejecting the screen podcast, pick a guy that, you have either played with, played against, or coached that you would choose to, with the game on the line, to reject the screen, go ISO, get a bucket? I'm going to go all three. Let's try that. Played with, I'm going James Harden. That's easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Played against. Am I talking about them at the level they were? Or yes. am I talking about them at, at the time? At their peak. No, no, at the time. At the that, time? Yes. Aaron Brooks from Oregon. Hmm. Couldn't guard that. Um, <laughs> and then what was the last one? Coached? Coached, yep. Coached, I coached. Ooh, that's interesting. Darren Williams was good at that. Mike Conley was good at that. I'm going Mike Conley. Steve, before actually, he said that was the last one, but you brought up Harden. I, I got to ask you one more question about Harden <laughs> because, you know, the narrative a few years ago was about Harden struggling as a defensive player or was, you know, didn't care about, about playing defense as much. And we've also seen, though, at times when Harden can lock in, we know how strong he is, obviously has great hands. What is your evaluation on James Harden as a defensive player right now? He's improved. To the point where you can't post him up. That's not a mismatch anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, he's more active on the ball. He's better on the weak side than he was when that YouTube montage came out. Um, to the point where really it's you know, the secret sauce is probably putting him in pick and roll. Um, but as far as that goes, he's found a way to be a team defender, be solid and not be a liability. And that's, really almost you can ask for these days in the league. Um, So I think he's more solid than he gets credit for on that end because it's kind of a meme now, which, hey, that happens. Um, But I think he's he's more solid than he gets credit for as far as being able to get steals, being able to make rotations, um, being able to defend in the post. Um, He's he's not bad. He's not as bad as as the uh, consensus gives him. I'll say that. 
Well, Steve, we appreciate all the time and we appreciate everything that you do, not just educating us on this podcast, but every night on Twitter. So we mm -hmm. really do appreciate it. Thanks so much for the time and continue to stay healthy with the whole family. Hey, no worries. You guys have a good one. Hopefully I can come back on and y'all won't go through my worst hits ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. It was a blast. <laughs> All right. Steve, thanks so much, man. Really do appreciate it. <laughs> I'm sarcastic. Sorry. Oh, man. <laughs> I really do mean it. I learned a lot from him watching yes. on Twitter. And I, I think his point about I focus on the why it's easy to see the what and he'll explain the why I think that should go a long way in educating those who want to be educated. Cause as you said, sometimes, you know, the, the what and the narratives are an entree into the game. And maybe that's just as far as some fans want to take it. And that's okay. You know, it reminds me of Noah. I remember when I was a kid, I'd watch movies and, you know, you'd be watching TV and they'd say, hey, in this movie, you can see that the symbolism for the Wizard of Oz meant that yeah, during right. this time period. And my dad used to turn to me and say, why can't a movie just be about what it's about? Why do they have to talk about, you know, can't the Godfather just be about, you know, this crime family, what have you? Why does it have to symbolize this? And there's a deeper meaning and this meant this. But, you know, and there wasn't foreshadowing. It was just this thing was going to happen eventually. It's sort of in a weird way how I think a lot of NBA fans look at it. Some people just want to watch the game, enjoy it, root for the teams they root for. And if they're a Lakers fan, then Kobe's the great. I mean, well, Kobe's the greatest ever. And LeBron's right there with him. And, you know, and, and everything is great. And as long as the Lakers win. And what's cool about. Steve's breakdowns for me, and, and I know you're the same way, is you look at a play, think one thing happened, and he says, no, here's here's another look. This is why this took place. Um, it wasn't so obvious the first viewing. And most of basketball, when you break down the film, isn't. There is mm -hmm. there is such a deeper understanding, and I thought that was it's pretty cool to get inside his brain for a little while. So, again, you can follow him on Twitter at SteveJones20. Just don't ask him about Ali Farouk Manesh in Northern no. Iowa. No, don't. you can follow us on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Adams on Twitter at Naismith lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Here's what else we have on the Locked On Podcast Network. Locked On NBA is five days a week. Hollinger and Duncan. Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd and your team every day. All 30 teams every single day on the Locked On Podcast Network. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.